1: Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 353rd edition of Talk to Tuesday, and brought to you today by the ICD University... Bookstore, inviting you to attend an upcoming webcast on e Coding. And joining me this morning is my co-host, the very popular Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer is the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, MD. And good morning, Erica. You've been missed. Welcome back.
2: Good morning, Chuck, and hello, everyone. Juliet, if you're listening, thanks for covering me last week.
1: <laughs> Indeed. Thank you, Juliet, very much. Our lead story this morning is one that you, Erica, brought to our attention. It's How to Interpret Guideline 1A19.
2: That's right. I'm not sure that everyone is applying it correctly.
1: Well, it's a recurring issue, and I thank you very much for revisiting this topic with us today.
2: And speaking about coding, Lori Johnson will be reporting on coding not only influenza, but also the ICD-10 coding of acupuncture
1: acupuncture. That's very interesting. And returning to Talk 10 Tuesday today is Julie Dooling. Julie's going to be reporting on the recent GAO investigation into challenges that hospitals are facing when it comes to patient matching.
2: Fascinating. And Deb Greider returns to report on the problem providers face with APP billing rules, specifically the CMS Advanced Practitioner Professional Billing.
1: That's right. We have much to report this morning during today's 353rd edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. And we begin this morning with ICD-10. 10 National correspondent Tim Powell. He's at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk.
0: The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by ICD University. Inviting you to subscribe to the 2019 ICD-10 Monitor Webcast Series. 40 ICD-10 Educational Webcasts for one low price. Buy for yourself or buy for your team. For more information, call 800-252-1578,
3: extension 2. Here now is Tim Powell. Hi Chuck. CMS was tired of paying too much for care in nursing homes. They were tired of fighting with lawyers and consultants driving up payments and gaming the system. CMS is finally replacing the resource utilization group system with the new patient driven payment model or PDPM. The new system becomes effective October first of twenty nineteen. Skilled nursing homes have been currently are currently paid a per diem by Medicare under the rug system. The new PDPM is also a per diem payment method. The rug model was largely driven by the number of minutes of physical, occupational, and speech therapy provided, and the score for the assistance of the of the patient required to perform activities of daily living or ADLs. The highest payments were for ultra-high or RUX claims. To qualify, the patient had to. For RUX patients, a patient had to have more than 720 minutes of therapy, and it had to include a combination of physical, occupational, and speech therapy. I provided a table below that will be in my article that gives all the minutes required for each of the drug levels. So here's what's frustrated CMS. There are a number of nursing homes that currently bill every patient as an RUX claim. In court and under appeal, they argue that their patients require this care. Every patient is supposedly getting more than 720 minutes in their facilities. A lot of these nursing homes are here in South Florida, and it's an unequal spread across the country. CMS thought they were getting ripped off, and that could be true. It became a cottage industry for physical therapy providers and nursing homes to work together to increase their payments. PDPM is called patient-driven because payments are now driven by the patient's CMI, or case mix index. The case mix index is based on functional scoring, not minutes of service. Nursing homes wanting to push up payments are now going to have to do something much more complicated than, than providing numbers of minutes of service for therapy. They're going to have to increase their functional scores to drive up the CMI. So included in my article is going to be a snapshot of the payment model uh, that includes all the elements of the payment model. Um, But under PDPM, therapy will be paid on a per diem basis instead of driving the higher rates based on minutes. And in addition, the payment will drop for therapy the longer the patient stays in the nursing home. It starts with an adjustment factor of one for the first 20 days of service, dropping down to 76% as an adjustment factor to the per diem for PT and OT components under the new payment method. In conclusion, if this experiment by CMS works, look for more of the same and payment methodology from CMS. At the very least, it will take it will take a while for providers to find another way to increase payments. And also look for an uneven spread in the pain of the regulatory change. While the change in reimbursement methods is considered to be budget neutral. It means that South Florida and places where they've been billing for much higher levels of therapy services are going to see uh, much more of a hit as the new regulations move into effect. And with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim
3: Powell. Tim was
1: a compliance expert and an ICD monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday, January the 22nd, 2019. It's day 32 of the partial government shutdown, and you're listening to the 353rd edition of Talked in Tuesday. Stand by.
0: Your organization is at risk of losing revenue due to inaccurate coding of evaluation and management, E&M. Failure to properly code for e services can lead to failed audits, costly repayments, and an interruption of patient care. Master the coding of e services during a four-part webcast featuring Dr. Jeffrey Lehrman. This important webcast begins tomorrow, January 23rd. And save $25 by using the coupon code TUESDAY. Just enter TUESDAY and save $25. To register, click on the handout tab in today's Talk 10 Tuesday. Register now to master the coding of e services with Dr. Jeffrey Lehrman and save $25
1: using the coupon code TUESDAY. Thanks, Clark. And by the way, that webcast, Coupon Code TUESDAY, is good for all ICD University webcasts, but only one per person that is available only for the webcast. And tomorrow's e webcast is about history and examination. It's part one. At the top of the broadcast, we mentioned that providers are facing problems with billing issues, specifically the CMS Advanced Practitioner Professional Billing. Here now with more on this troubling subject is author, educator, and consultant Deb Greider. Good morning, Deb. Welcome to the program.
4: Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, everyone. You know, um, I'm an auditor, and I audit medical records, and I see a lot of struggles with the what, what we call the non-physician practitioner billing rules from CMS. Uh, Most facilities are now referring to their NPPs as advanced practice professionals, which includes physician assistants, nurse practitioners, clinical nurse specialists. So, um, one of the other issues that comes to mind is that not everybody follows CMS's rules for the billing for non-physician practitioners. So, it's important that you know what your payers require. The Blues have a different methodology. United Healthcare has a methodology that's different. So, you need to follow those specifically. So, there are three different types of services that can be billed by advanced practitioners: incident-to, split, shared, and direct. Um, With an APP, they can perform office visits, they can assist in surgery, they can perform office procedures, or any other service within their state scope of practice. And I have an article on ICD-10 Monitor with links to those different websites where you can find the state scope of practice. And it's important when a physician hires an advanced practitioner professional in their practice that they understand the scope. So one of the issues with Incident 2 billing, it must be performed in the office suite, It's not allowed in the ER, in the ED, or in the hospital setting. The physician must see the patient initially and perform a plan of care. So there has to be a developed plan of care. And the physician must maintain um, activity with that patient. So they must see that patient periodically. But the advanced practitioner professional can execute that plan of care and see that patient in follow up. So it has to be an established patient without a new problem. So if a new problem occurs, they can't bill Incident 2 services. Of course, they can bill directly under their NPI number, but they lose 15% of the revenue for CMS, which Medicare pays 85% of the Medicare physician fee schedule, which is that 15% reduction. Physician does have to be in the office suite. So they have to be physically in the office suite. It does not need to be the supervising physician for the APP, but a physician who can supervise if necessary. Medicare doesn't require the note to be signed by every note to be signed, but it's recommended because if you think about it, the physician is actually taking responsibility when it's billed under their NPI number. Some non-Medicare payers require the SA modifier when billing incident two. And then when we looked at split shared, split shared is where they share the visit. Split shared can be performed in the office setting, but incident two has to be met. So they can't see new patients under split-shared. They can't perform a consult under split-shared. Split-shared is typically more advantageous in the hospital setting where the physician and the advanced practitioner professional share the visit, billing under the physician's NPI number, which is most advantageous, they cannot split-share critical care services. Critical care must be directly billed. They cannot split-share bedside or surgical procedures. Those have to be directly billed. And so split-share does apply to both office and hospital setting except for critical care. The split-share rules apply to physicians and advanced practitioners who are employed by the same entity so if you have a shared service between a hospital employed APP and a private physician, they cannot be billed as a shared visit, a split shared visit. Each has to document and bill under their own NPI number. And then lastly, we have direct bill. Direct bill can be done in the office setting, in the hospital setting, where the advanced practitioner bills under their own NPI number. It could be a new patient, an established patient, a consult, an established patient with a new problem or a worsening problem. But again, it has to be reported for critical care direct bill. Physician does not need to be in the office suite in the office. It can be delivered in the hospital, including the ER and critical care. And it's billed under the NPP's name and NPI number. And, again, there's a 15% reduction in services, and all procedures must be billed under the NPP's NPI number. I know that sounds like a lot with NPP and NPI. Um, But one thing not to forget as I close, don't forget your assistant surgery surgery. Services with modifier AS, if you have an assistant who is providing that service, make sure that you document specifically what role that assistant played in the surgical procedure because payers are paying an additional revenue for those procedures, and if you don't document what specifically that Advanced practitioner professional did in within the surgical procedure, then typically the payers are going to deny that service or ask for recovery if they audit your records. So make sure that you understand how to bill for the APP services, so it doesn't result in serious revenue cycle reduction or potential compliance areas. I'll toss it to you, Erica.
2: Thanks, Deb. In my consulting, I find that folks often don't document split shared rates. That was author, educator, and consultant Deb Greider. Deb is senior healthcare consultant for Karen Zupko and Associates. Chuck,
1: thanks, Erica, and Deb. Thank you very much for an excellent report. You can read Deb's reporting on this very important subject in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E News. Returning this morning with our Tuck In Tuesday coding report is Lori Johnson. Good morning, Lori. ICD-10 coding for acupuncture is that right? That's right, Chuck.
5: Public Health is on my mind today and and we'll talk about the acupuncture and how that relates soon, um, and especially in two year two areas of public health, um, flu vaccination and the opioid epidemic. Speaking as someone who has an egg allergy, this is my first year for getting a flu shot, um, and I've talked about that before. The Center for Disease Control, the CDC has recommended that individuals with an egg allergy get their flu shot at a medical facility. I had mine actually at the local pharmacy, and I had no trouble at all with receiving that flu shot. And it's also a reminder, it takes two weeks for that vaccine to become fully activated. And we are in the middle of the peak season, which is December through uh, February. It is also important to capture the immunizations, Z23, the the diagnosis code, and the administration using CPT for public health monitoring. It is also possible to capture the administration of the flu vaccine in ICD-10 PCS. Um, For example, 3E01340 captures the um, subcutaneous um, intramuscular Um, in injection of the flu vaccine. The opioid crisis is next on my list. There were over 70,000 deaths due to drug overdoses in 2017, and many of them due to opioids. Because of the increasing number of deaths, Health and Human Services has developed a five-point strategy. The first point is better data. The data reporting begins with coding, billing, and documentation. It begins with us. Better Pain Treatment, CMS, with the American Health Care Research and Quality, AHRQ, and National Institutes of Health, NIH, are doing an analysis on coverage for acupuncture as treatment for chronic low back pain. They are accepting comments until February 14th. The URL and information is in my article that was published this morning on www.icd10monitor.com. Acupuncture can be coded in CPT, and it falls in the range of 97810 to 97814, and in PCS from the table 8E0. The third point is more addiction prevention, treatment, and recovery services. And I'm sure, like, like you, you... Like I have, you've seen a lot more um, commercials on T on TV with regards to um, treatment, recovery, and prevention of addiction. We need to have more overdose reversers. So, and I have seen many more ads or documentation that Narcan is much more available. And five, better research. This effort will take some time. My takeaway today is that coders and documentation specialists can make a difference in public health through reporting of appropriate codes. So back to you, Erica.
2: Thanks, Lori. That was nationally recognized coding authority, Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Talk.
1: Thanks, Erica. And, Laurie, thank you very, very much for an outstanding report. You can read Laurie's reporting on this very important topic in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor e-news. And coming up at the end of the program, we're going to hear a talkback segment. from Dr. Erica Reem, she's going to be talking about Code or Not to Code. That's coming up in a few minutes. And returning to Talk Ten Tuesday this morning is Julie Dooling. Julie reports on the recent GAO investigation into the challenges that hospitals are facing when it comes to patient matching. Here now is Julie Dooling. Good morning, Julie. Welcome to the program.
6: Good morning. Thanks, Chuck and Erica. It's great to be back on Talk 10 Tuesdays. The long-awaited Government Accountability Office, or the GAO, report on patient matching dropped last Wednesday. The industry has been waiting for this report since the 2016 passage of the 21st Century Cures Act. The act included a provision for the GAO to report on the Office of the National Coordinators, the ONC, patient record matching policies and related activities. The report concluded that more work is needed to ensure that patient health records are consistently and accurately matched. The GAO interviewed a total of 37 stakeholders, including ONC officials, provider and industry associations, representatives from physician practices, hospitals, health information exchanges, HIEs, and information technology vendors. The interviewed parties reported the following challenges. Incomplete, inaccurate, or inconsistent formatted demographic data. We're talking about first name, last name, middle initial or middle name, date of birth, cell phone, uh, and in addition, patient records don't always contain correct information was a finding, and that health information technology systems and providers use different formats for things like names that contain hyphens. These findings are very well known by AHEMA and other industry partners, and certainly our HIM professionals who manage the Master Patient Index, the M the M not the NPI, and these professionals struggle daily with the management and resolution of these data discrepancies. Stakeholders relayed that more could be done to improve patient matching and identified several efforts. First of all, common standards for demographic data, developing a data set to test the accuracy of matching methods sharing best practices, and other resources. And all of those have been worked on uh, by many, including the HEMA. Uh, the next one was developing a public-private collaboration effort. And then some suggested an ONC requirement of, de- of demographic data standards as part, of the, as part of the EHR certification process, while others suggested that ONC facilitate the voluntary a- adoption of these standards. And then finally, uh, they also referred to implementing a national patient identifier, a national unique patient identifier, UPI. And we've been talking about this for 20 years since HIPAA was passed in 1998. And at that time, there was a requirement in the law that a UPI would be adopted, but Congress overruled due to privacy concerns. Finally, the report noted that many stakeholders emphasized that no single effort would be would solve the challenge of patient matching. This is a really important finding since patient matching is not a once and done technology-only solution. The people processes and technology approaches used by many incorporates staff education and training, Daily maintenance of the MPI and ensuring that the technology used to sometimes auto match records using back end algorithms um, is quality monitored. The healthcare industry has long recognized the need for accurate patient matching, and many, like AHEMA, have added to the data standards and best practices of um, body of knowledge. As our systems become larger through mergers and acquisitions, technology disruption, and ingesting data from multiple sources, data standards across our systems, such as registration, the EHR, the MPI, the EMPI, and the HIE are necessary to maintain a low duplicate error rate within the patient population. And back to you, Erica. Thank you.
2: Thanks, Julie. That was Julie Dooling. Julie is the AHIMA Director of HIM Practice Excellence. Tuck.
1: Thanks, Erica. And again, Julie, thank you very much for an excellent article. And you can read Julie's exclusive reporting in today's edition of the ICD-10 Monitor E-News. Thanks again. Now's the time for our very popular segment here on Tucked on Tuesdays called Talk Back. And once again, here is Dr. Erica Reamer with our lead story this morning.
2: In the ICD-10-CM guidelines, guideline 1A19 says The assignment of a diagnosis code is based on the provider's diagnostic statement that the condition exists. The provider's statement that the patient has a particular condition is sufficient. Code assignment is not based on clinical criteria used by the provider to establish the diagnosis. This guideline is frequently bandied about as the reason why coders code diagnoses, because the doctor said so. I hypothesized that the guideline's true purpose was to prohibit coders from assigning codes to conditions which might be inferred from clinical indicators and criteria, instead requiring the provider to make a definitive or uncertain explicit declaration of the condition. Is a potassium of 6.9 hyperkalemia? It may be. The level is high enough to satisfy the diagnosis of hyperkalemia but are there extenuating circumstances which would deter the provider from drawing that conclusion? Is the specimen hemolyzed in a patient with normal renal function on no meds prone to causing hyperkalemia? It makes it much less likely. It requires a clinician to use their clinical judgment to make the determination of the significance of the elevated potassium. A coder can't and may not just refer to the normal range and conclude and code that the patient has a medical condition based on the value. Conversely, if a provider makes a diagnosis using their medical judgment, the coder shouldn't discount it if the patient didn't read the textbook. If a clinician believes a patient has bacterial endocarditis, but enough major and minor criteria aren't ticked off to meet the formal definition of infectious endocarditis, should the coder reject the diagnosis out of hand? Of course not, but best practice is for the provider to explain their thought process. When I read Guideline 1A19, I wonder to myself, the fact that the provider said it may be sufficient, but does that mean that it is mandatory to code it? Even the most seasoned medical coder is not a clinician. If said coder, or perhaps even a less experienced coder, questions whether the diagnosis is really present or not, wouldn't you imagine that an auditor or lawyer might be wondering the same thing? Clinical validation is an ever-expanding issue. The reality is that only the one I'm sorry, the reality is that the only one who can affirm that a condition is clinically valid is a provider who has personally evaluated the patient. The rest of us are going on what's recorded in the chart. If we have a concern about clinical validity, what we really have is a concern that the documentation as it stands does not seem to support the diagnosis offered. If you as a coder or a CETIS have a question that a diagnosis is not legitimate, you may be permitted to code it by guideline 1A19, but it doesn't mean you should or have to. The wisest approach is to generate a clinical validation query and have the provider either confirm the diagnosis and beef up their documentation or remove the diagnosis because they realize it isn't really present. We want the documentation and the codes to be accurately depicting the patient encounter. Don't let guideline 1A19 prevent you from getting to the truth. Chuck, back to you.
1: Thanks, Erica, very much for that lead story this morning. We have asked our panelists to stick around. We've got a number of questions. Erica, let's take a look at some of those questions, okay?
2: All right. Belinda asks, as far as following treatment plan... In Incident 2, what if a change in medication is needed? Is that no longer following the treatment plan? So I guess the uh, question is, would that still be able to be billed as Incident 2?
1: Deb, can you respond to the question, please?
4: If there's a change in medication, there is a change in treatment plan. So at that point, uh, it would not be considered incident two because obviously there's a reason why medication is changed. Now, if it's not a condition that's worsening, again, you'd have to look at the documentation. That's one of those gray areas that you, you would have to really analyze. But typically, if there's a change in medication, there's a change in the status of the condition, and that would not support incident two.
2: So, Belinda, let me follow that up and ask you a question so you can clarify it for me. So I'm an APP. I'm seeing a patient that's been seen in our office before. There's a treatment plan, and I don't anticipate that there's going to be a change in medication, but I find that they do. So does that mean I need to now go get the provider, and they have to come in and see the patient so that it can be appropriately documented and billed?
4: Well, Well, here's the problem that you run into with this. Um, all of the documentation, you know, at this point, it can't be a split shared because the split shared has to follow incident two in the, in the office. So the physician would have to start over, of course, with the new E&M guidelines. They can use what's been documented for the history, but the physician's going to have to um, intervene. Or typically what most practices do is they just go ahead and bill under the APP's NPI number because now it's not really
1: technically incident two.
2: Then they just do it direct. Correct. Okay, that makes sense. Chuck, looks like we've run out of time.
1: Well, I think we have run out of time, and I want to thank you very much for all your questions you've been sending in. We'll make every effort to answer those questions offline in the next day or two, and that is going to be a wrap for our 353rd edition of Talked in Tuesday. And Eric, and I want to thank our panelists today, Julie Dooling, Deb Grider, Lori Johnson, Tim Powell, and, of course, Dr. Erica Reamer. And I want to thank Dr. Julia Dugarte for sitting in last year. Dr. Eric Arimer. thanks again, Julia. We appreciate it. And uh, don't forget to be with us tomorrow, Wednesday, for the ICD University important webcast on E&M Coding. It's coming your way at 1.30 p.m. Eastern. And remember, you can save $25 simply by using the coupon code TUESDAY. Until then, I'm Chuck Buck, reporter for Tucked In Tuesday, and ICD Design Monitor, thanks again for joining us.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.